Welcome to um, welcome to Dissidents and Dictators. This is the Human Rights Foundation's conversation series where we expose dictators, debate pressing global human rights issues, and brainstorm how we can collectively put human rights at the top of the world agenda. Uh, my name is Alvaro Piaggio, and I'm a policy advisor with HRF. HRF is an international, nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting and protecting human rights globally with a focus on countries under authoritarian rule. We unite people in the common cause of promoting liberal democracy. You may visit our website, hrf.org, to learn more about the work that we do. Uh, please also make sure to follow us on Twitter for more conversations like this one. Um, previous guests include human rights activist and anti-corruption activist Bill Browder, uh, Rohingya Burmese activist and former political prisoner Weiwei Nu, Russian democracy activist Vladimir Karamursa, and many, many more. Uh, before we begin, I want to inform everyone participating today that this conversation will be recorded and it will be released as a podcast in the future. Um, at the end of this conversation, we have some time for questions, but uh, you know, we caution everyone participating today that if you have security concerns, uh, you can use anonymity on your account profile and you can voice your opinions and, and your questions without using personal identifiers if you wish. Thank you for understanding. Uh, so our, our guest this week is uh, Vincent Geloso. Vincent is an economic historian and an assistant professor at George Mason University. Um, his re research interests include population economics and political economy. And he has published on the Cuban economy and his healthcare system in academic journals such as the British Medical Jour Journal, um, Explorations in Economic History, and Health Policy and Planning. Um, today's topic is uh, human development and dictatorships. Uh, Cuban health, Cuban healthcare, and other myths. Um, today, we will dive into Vincent's work on Cuba and how it has shed a light on how much of the regime's official story of how they have run a successful healthcare system is mostly a myth. Uh, but we will also talk about how other dictatorships tend to get praised for certain development achievements, um, often without any consideration uh, to the nature of the regimes and what the consequences of this are in terms of policy and the general advancement of human rights around the world. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Vincent. It's a pleasure to have you with it's us. It's a pleasure today. to be with you guys. All right, um, let's get to it. Um, so uh, first of all, I wanted to ask you if you could uh, start telling us a little bit about the concept of economic development. Uh, I think most people think of um, GDP per capita when they think about this, um, you know, especially non-economists. And uh, I, as I understand it nowadays, there's like a bigger push to um, look at other dimensions uh, that go beyond GDP uh, to measure development. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the concept in general, uh, how you view this uh, this push and, and you know, um, what are the implications of this? So, um, generally, GDP is a good enough measure uh, in their certain conditions of what you could call broadly defined uh, economic development. Uh, that basically means, and what we mean by development, is the idea that we have more area for, for choice. So we have more control over our lives. We have more agency. Uh, there is uh, a greater area of choices that we can exercise. Uh, but even under the best conditions, GDP per capita is not a perfect measure. It's especially flawed when you're in 
uh, somewhat unfree or in unfree societies, uh, in part because dictatorships uh, tend to uh, create incentives that uh, lead to uh, misreporting or uh, overreporting in certain situations of what GDP is, but also because of the nature of some assumptions that go into measuring GDP, uh, notably that people exchange uh, freely and thus that we can observe uh, uh, in the quantities traded for people in dollar signs we put on these goods, we can actually assign uh, some meaning of well-being. Uh, in unfree societies, this is harder to do, and it starts breaking apart uh, in uh, in uh, less free societies such that we tend to need, and I would say it like that, the more unfree the society you're looking at, the greater the burden of evidence that should be advanced to discuss uh, the extent of development. Uh, in freer societies, you can rely on a few indicators. In uh, unfree societies, you need more and more to make sure that the numbers aren't uh, deceiving you uh, as a result, sometimes of the regime's intents or sometimes because of the regime's inabilities. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so you've done some research. You've done some research on on one of these unfree regimes, um, and you know it, 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 this this particular case of Cuba because Cuba is not particularly known for having um, a particularly large GDP per capita. Actually, it is about half of other more developed countries in Latin America, like Chile or Uruguay. Uh, but there is uh, a myth that the, the Cuban uh, regime has sold over the years that they have uh, an amazing universal healthcare system. Uh, and, and this is backed up by data that they provide on infant mortality levels that are very low. And they were very low even when other countries in Latin America were uh, had much higher numbers, uh, life expectancy and, 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 and things like this. So, uh, one of these papers that you wrote is called uh, The Cuban Revolution and Infant Mortality, a uh, Synthetic Control Approach. Um, I want you to tell us a little bit about what you found there. Uh, and, and, and also, once you tell us a little bit about this one, I, I know you, you went on to write another one on the topic of these positive, supposedly positive, allegedly positive health outcomes um, in other dictatorships. Um, uh, in, in a sense that there's a pattern right there. So can you tell us a bit about your work and, and, and the things that you found? Okay, so with regards to Cuba, um, so we should always be skeptical when a regime picks a number, especially an unfree regime, uh, picks a number to advertise uh, how great uh, it is. Uh, and uh, the example for Cuba is that they keep pointing out that uh, look, Cuban healthcare is apparently has low level of infant mortality. Uh, actually, it rivals the levels observed in the United States. Surprisingly, even though Cuba is a fraction as rich as as the United States, so this is presented by the regime itself and by certain apologists as evidence of Cuba's great performance in terms of of health outcomes. Uh, but there's a lot to disentangle there. Uh, uh, there is some data manipulation, 
But the, more importantly than the extent of data manipulation that is, is present is the fact that even before the Castro regime took power in Cuba, uh, Cuba was exceptional. Cuba always has had exceptionally low infant mortality rates. In, 19, in the 1950s, before uh, Batista was uh, thrown out of power and Castro took over, Cuba had infant mortality rates well below the rest of Latin America, well in excess. It was already an outlier in, in its category. And the question that we should ask is, did the regime made Cuba even more exceptional than, than it was? And the method that my co-author and I, my co-author being Jamie Bologna Pavlik from Texas Tech University, what we did is we used other Latin American countries that... Uh, that were similar to Cuba up to 1959, and then uh, checked what would, uh, based on these countries, what would Cuba have looked like had it not had the unique treatment of uh, getting the Castro uh, slash communist regime, which was exceptional back then. And what we find is that actually in the first 15 years of Q of the the regime. Uh, infant mortality return uh, actually increased massively relative to uh, what was predicted, and this translates into uh, roughly uh, an excess 46, 47,000 uh, extra infant deaths. Actually, somewhere between 43 and 53 is the number uh, I was looking for. So, on total, a, a large number of excess mortality from, from infants. Uh, and that effect, uh, that uh, increase relative to what we can call the counterfactual, what Cuba would have been like had it not been for the regime taking power, uh, that excess mortality uh, resorbs itself to 1975, and Cuba returns to the trend on which it used to be, no better, no worse. So Cuba is basically the way we can say it in terms of infant mortality, is as good today as would have been expected absent the, the regime. So the regime had, in a sense, no impact. Uh, it seems it's stuff that was uh, either exogenous to Cuba and shared with other countries that uh, in Latin America, or to factors that were specific to Cuba, uh, but would not uh, were not under the control of of the regime. So overall, the result is the regime didn't do what it pretends to do. And even though it advertises the exceptionally low level, not noting that Cuba was already exceptional by the time it was taken over and it still is exceptional today in some ways, uh, but the, the, the cost that it comes in, and this is where we should speak about the multiple dimensions of what constitute development, is that uh, Cubans are exceptionally poor uh, and that on other health metrics, such as maternal mortality, uh, access to clean water, uh, they are faring much, much, much worse under the uh, dictatorship of the Castros and their and their successor. Um, that's fascinating. Uh, it, what about other other uh, uh, other countries? I mean, I know you you mentioned uh, uh, you wrote another paper also on. on making sense of dictatorships and health outcomes. Um, 
Uh, what can you tell? What other countries can you tell me? Can you tell us about that have uh, perhaps similar uh, experiences? Cuba is very iconic because um, in Latin America, especially in the United States, I mean, there's. Uh, I remember, whenever I think of Cuba in the United States and how people view their, their healthcare system, I think of Michael Moore <laughs> and the documentary Sicko. Um, I know there's a lot that we can criticize about the healthcare system in the United States, but uh, uh, Michael Moore made it seem like when he traveled to Cuba that it was uh, it was such a fantastic uh, service that everything was working uh, perfectly fine. Uh, uh, so, and, and, you know, and in the sense, probably other countries don't get that kind of promotion. But uh, well, here's the thing. Uh, here's the thing. Uh, Cuba doesn't perform as well as it is often claimed uh, publicly. Uh, we see. So there's what I've mentioned. It is due to factors that are exogenous to the regime's uh, control. There's also clear signs of data manipulation. So one of the reasons Cuba looks like it's exceptional is in part because doctors in Cuba have targets that are set by the central government that they must meet in terms of infant mortalities. And if the doctors don't meet those targets, they will be punished. Uh, and that basically means that this structure of incentive uh, leads doctors to act in ways that uh, doctors in free countries would not. Uh, so, for example, uh, doctors will use much more heavy-handed methods. Uh, they will often do operations at, uh, against the will of patients because it's important to note that in Cuba there is no right to privacy. There is also no right to refuse a particular treatment. Uh, some mothers with uh, uh, what they would call bad behavior, I think the word was anti-revolutionary behavior, uh, are, uh, are incarcerated for all intents and purposes in Casa de Maternidad, where their, uh, their behavior is regulated during the time of pregnancy so as to reduce the likelihood of, of a pregnancy being carried to term that would be high risk of death in the early, uh, in the early days after uh, Bert is is given. Um, so add all of this together, and what you find is doctors in Cuba use very heavy-handed methods. Uh, sometimes you there's widespread acknowledgement that there is such a thing as pressured abortions, uh, coerced abortions, so that the mother does not want to have this procedure done, and yet is done against her will. Sometimes uh, it is concealed uh, from her that the procedure leads to. Uh, to this, there is also reclassification of infants born uh, and that die within the first two or three days that will be reclassified as stillbirths so that they are excluded from the infant mortality rate. And when you pile this up, Cuba falls from first place to sixth or seventh place, uh, if I remember properly. So there is that manipulation of the data. But the thing is, is even if we pile everything I've just said against the Cuban regime, it's entirely possible to, ex it's actually totally reasonable to expect dictatorships to perform very well on, on health care, just like the Soviet Union performed really well on space missions. See, the great virtue for, for a dictator is that the immense amount of coercive, of coercive tools at, at his disposal allows him to reallocate uh, resources to ends he desires most. Now, 
it means that in practice, we'll observe, in the case of the Soviet Union, we'll observe more people in space. In the case of Cuba, we'll observe much more doctors and much more nurses. Uh, 1% of Cuba's population are doctors, which is an insanely high proportion where you compare with the United States, but the fraction is a third of that. So it's, 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 you can really invest a lot in something when you're a dictatorship because you have such coercive powers. The problem is when you look at what you would call the trade-offs from the use of such coercion, the use of such coercion generally comes with poor uh, uh, outcomes on other dimensions that we could call economic development. It will be lower GDP per capita. It will be lower life expectancy at advanced ages. It will be higher rates of maternal mortality. It will be uh, lower rates of access to, uh, to clean water. It will be uh, higher rates of mortality from, uh, uh, from non-infectious diseases. It will be greater rates of malnutrition. Uh, so when you look at a more multidimensional picture, you can see that it's totally reasonable for a dictator to use all his power to invest a lot in healthcare and disregard all the other costs that people may actually would like to, to trade against. And the way to think about this is go to, imagine you were to go to Cuba and you said to Cuban, you know, all the coercive tools that the regime does uh, has this effect on life expectancy. And let's just put a number, say all that the regime does is uh, adds two years of life expectancy from birth for you on average. Are you willing to trade this for higher incomes higher access to clean water uh, and list all the trade-offs and ask Cubans if they're willing to give up some of that extra life expectancy uh, and pile on the, uh, like say, the most obvious cost from a dictatorship, the loss of personal freedom. Ask them if they're willing to trade two years of life under dictatorship uh, for two fewer years and all the benefits uh, all the other trade-offs and personal freedom, and I'm guaranteed that the vast majority of Cubans would say yes. So the, the point I'm making is dictatorships are really good at solving univariate problems, but they are really, really, really bad at solving multivariate problems, uh, and multivariate problems are the stuff of economic development. Uh, they're the stuff that uh, hinge on higher economic growth, on an expansion of uh, choice areas for people so that they have more options available, that there's more room for agency. Uh, and this doesn't come from, from dictatorships. Dictatorships are only good at improving a, uh, a particular outcome at massive cost in terms of other outcomes. Absolutely. And, and I would say that when you're talking about the, the trade of, um, and, and you mentioned at the beginning also the trade of can also uh, come in, in, in terms of a lower uh, lower economic growth in general. Um, and, and that would make you think that um, if you could get these two extra years in life expectancy with the massive amount of coercion, um, you could easily get those two extra years in a freer country where you have, uh, where you don't have that coercion, but you have allowed for much more economic yes, growth. There, there's that. So my argument was kind of uh, all else being equal uh, and yeah. was not was more of a static argument. But when you make it dynamic, the trade-off looks even worse. 
In fact, there's also something worth mentioning that's uh, unique to coercion under that dictators can deploy. Uh, in some settings, coercion can be so extreme that it actually leads to improvement in health outcome. One way this is obvious is in Cuba, and that will have nothing to do with health policy, by the way. Uh, in Cuba, the extreme restrictions on importing cars uh, and the uh, dismal performance of the state-owned provider producer of cars uh, that is uh, as government-made uh, cars are so bad that Cuba is one of the lowest rates of car ownership in, in all of the Caribbean and Latin America. The result of that low rate of car ownership is that fewer people get to drive. And the fact of the matter is, is when you look at road fatality, road fatalities are a huge, huge factor in uh, reducing uh, life expectancy at birth because most of the people who die in car accidents generally tend to be younger, uh, i.e. more reckless uh, drivers. And when you look at the literature that, uh, that try to account for the effect of road accidents, uh, generally it is found that uh, for example, for, for males in Brazil, which has eight times the level of car ownership uh, of Cuba, there the level of road fatalities uh, knocks off nearly half a year uh, of life expectancy at birth uh, for men. So Cuba's extreme repressive measures in terms of, uh, of car ownership, which has nothing to do with healthcare, right? This is a macroeconomic uh, outcome of restricting imports of, of cars has this weird effect of making Cubans apparently, at first glance, uh, healthier. Uh, but that's because they're not exposed to uh, the, the risk of, of car accidents. But the risk of car accident comes with the amazing liberty uh, that buying a car gives you in terms of mobility. So go back to the question of Let's go and ask Cubans if they'd be willing to give up, say that, uh, to take the risk of car accidents for the car. And I'm guaranteeing you that they take that. Uh, so the, the way people picture the regime as being uh, a great performer in terms of health outcomes is, is very exaggerated. It has very little to do with health policy. Uh, it has to do with indirect effects of, of extreme coercions. And one of the trade-offs of extreme coercion is the country is much poorer uh, and massively poorer than it otherwise uh, could be, especially since it's worth pointing out that um, Cuba in the 1950s was one of the richest countries in, in Latin America. Uh, the road not taken for Cuba is one of uh, a country that could have been very easily uh, maybe as rich as the United States or, or Canada. Uh, Cuba's reversal of fortune in the course of a mere few decades uh, is incredibly uh, depressing and is entirely can be laid entirely at the at the feet of the dictators, uh, the succession of dictators that have ruled Cuba uh, since 1959. Absolutely. Um... We, we can we can circle back to Cuba right now, but I also wanted to touch on other dictators uh, dictatorships and uh, and how people you know supporters of the dictator or, or people abroad that have this uh, romanticized view of them um, uh, tend to uh, you know like you said like like you mentioned in Cuba like look away look past the nature of the regime. Um, uh, but not in terms of health outcomes uh, or literacy, which is another another uh, 
another thing, uh, apologies to the regime or people that are um, uh, you know, it's, uh, fans of, of the Castro uh, revolution, uh, uh, but GDP, like growth itself, uh, just th this pure uh, uh, GDP per capita number uh, on, on, on certain countries, um, and and you know, how it's actually also a myth. Uh, sorry, I rambled a little bit, but <laughs> I wanted to get to the cases of, of Chile uh, under Pinochet. Um, there, there's obviously it's not as widespread as probably as Cuba and healthcare, but there is this belief that Pinochet had a um, major role to play in what some people call the Chilean miracle. Um, now, Chile is the, the richest country in Latin America. It has uh, a GDP per capita that is comparable to some some European countries. Uh, it's far it's far uh, outperformed a lot of other Latin American countries that were richer than Chile uh, a few decades ago. Um, and, and some people do, you know, legitimately, like, generally believe that it's, it, it was part of it was the work of the dictatorship of, of Augusto Pinochet. But um, there are other cases that come to mind um, historically, like uh, in South Korea. Uh, and uh, another case that it's, it's you know, it's, it's still happening today. It's still as a regime that is alive today, which is Singapore. Um, Singapore is another case that people point out, like, hey, look, this is a dictatorship um, because Singapore is basically a one-party state. It has been since independence, and it has uh, remarkable, remarkable levels of development. Uh, it has a GDP per capita that is higher than many, many uh, European countries. Um, so how, how, do you, uh, how do you see all this? Like, how do you respond to this? Is there any truth to that, um, uh, that, that, that dictatorships actually help these So elements? here's the thing. Let's say, let's do the list of dictatorships where, so my argument is that dictatorships are really good at solving univariate problems, right? And they, and by doing so, they come at massive costs in terms of other dimensions of what we would broadly define as well-being. Uh, and we wouldn't be fan of uh, making those trade-offs. Uh, and when you do the list of, of countries that have had uh, dictators that uh, really improved one outcome and made a ten of other outcomes much worse in the long run or in the immediate term, the list is nearly endless. And if you do the list of dictators that at first glance, and this is going to be important in the case of Cuba, uh, the case of Chile, sorry, uh, if you make the list of, of dictators that seem to have done something right, and the outcomes, the trade-offs don't seem as bad, you could say, oh, look, there's Chile, but the list appears to be N equals 1. And there's always going to be an exception. And the fact of the matter is, when you dig a bit deeper into the Chilean transition, uh, it's not clear whether or not this can be assigned to the regime itself. So there are some people using the same method I use for Cuban infant mortality who checked if... Uh, what proportion, essentially, of Chile's economic growth can be due to Pinochet and the reforms he made in the late 70s, early, early 80s, and what portion goes to the democratic retransition, that the redemocratization, if you want, of Chile in, uh, in the early, well, uh, in the early 1990s, uh, upon the deal uh, that was made between Pinochet and uh, 
and uh, uh, the, the rest of Chilean society for his returning to democracy and getting some form of immunity, immunity form uh, from, from pursuance. And what you find is that re-democratization appears to be more strongly associated with economic growth. Uh, uh, Chile's path in terms of economic growth is much faster after their re-democratization of the country than it would have been had it stayed with the authoritarian rules uh, of, of, of Pinochet uh, than otherwise would be the case. So what I was saying, so go back to the two lists, the list of countries that have dictators that improve one outcome at the cost of deteriorating all other outcomes, and that list is nearly endless, and they say, oh, look, there's that one exception. Well, even that one exception probably should be on the first list as well. The Pinochet didn't do what people assume he did. Uh, it seems to be a post-facto invention that we have made where here it's people on the right who have fallen prey to regime propaganda, just the same way as people on the left have fallen prey for regime propaganda regarding uh, Cuba. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um... So I also mentioned Singapore, for example. Uh, what, do you, what do you think of Singapore? Because uh, Singapore is one regime that is still alive today. Um, and, you know, uh, there's, I've heard a lot of discussion online. Uh, people say that, oh, well, it's, it, Singapore's not that bad. I mean, it's not Pinochet. It's not, it's not the Castro's in Cuba. Uh, but the reality is that like, Singapore is, is a, a one-party state. It is a repressive regime. Um, it, it's just a cheap levels of economic growth that are uh, impressive. Uh, what, what can you tell me about Singapore uh, in, in this context of, of dictators being good at one thing, but, you know, very bad at solving this unitary problem? So when you look at uh, Singapore in terms of GDP per capita, Singapore does look like it's, um, it, it looks pre pretty decent-ish. Uh, but when you look at other indicators, such as uh, the Human Development Index. Uh, it doesn't do bad on the Human Development Index, but for a country that has such a high level of income, it is actually towards the lower end. So the Human Development Index has other components, such as education and life expectancy. For a country that's near the top in terms of income per capita, the other outcomes are, are much, uh, much inferior. And there's other ways we could look at this. Uh, one of them is uh, there's other measures. So we have, for example, uh, there is the uh, happiness measure. So we have the global value survey where people are asked on a scale from zero to 10, how happy do you state you are? Uh, and when you compare with countries that are roughly as rich as Singapore, uh, levels of happiness are much lower so, uh, self-reported levels of happiness are much lower in Singapore than similarly rich countries. So it seems that Singapore also falls within that, that category of the regime seems to be able to Im improve the material standard of living, but uh, uh, more goods is not necessarily what people prefer as much. They'd be maybe willing to trade some goods for some form of leisurely pursuits or activities that are different, uh, that uh, maybe don't pursue produce 
uh, that much goods, but actually do produce utility from the vantage point of them as consumers, uh, so that there's some types of, of readings that they'd like to do, uh, that they'd like to engage in some trades that maybe would be less remunerative. So, for example, a banker might prefer to be a journalist, even though the pay is lower, uh, but because of low press freedom uh, in, in Singapore, the person goes to, uh, to being a banker. So it appears that income is higher, but in reality, uh, that uh, level of income uh, doesn't translate as much into utility. And this goes back to the point with which I led the conversation. In free society, GDP per capita is a closer match to uh, what you would call well-being broadly defined. So if GDP goes up, you can assume that well-being went up to some degree uh, as well, largely because uh, people are free to make choices, they're free to consume. And so what we'll observe is something that will be somewhat correlated with overall outcome. In unfree societies, this is not, the, this is not as strong uh, an assumption. So for example, let's, we could take like an extreme thought experiment. If I put a gun to everybody's head and say, produce more stuff for me, uh, output could actually be going up. It would be totally reasonable to expect output to go up in terms of total quantities of goods produced. Uh, but in doing so, it wouldn't mean that well-being uh, went up because I had to coerce you to do this and you would not have done it had I not coerced you. Hence, we can say that the extra output, the extra quantities of stuff measured in GDP in that situation are not correlate with, uh, are not correlates of improvements in well-being. So this is important to understand. People underappreciate this, but the... The more the repressive the regime in, the more indicators you need to get a full idea. Whereas in very free society, you can go with paucity of data. You don't need that much uh, to say something of great relevance over the trend of economic development, broadly defined. Of course. Um, I have one last example, um, and I want to get your opinion on um and and maybe talk a little bit about inequality with this one uh see how how um how that relates to this this whole conversation um it's something i mentioned to you earlier today is equatorial guinea um equatorial guinea is uh is a small country in africa uh oil producing country ruled by uh, a brutal dictatorship one of the oldest dictatorships in in, in africa <laughs> and in the world really um but Tedoro Obiang and uh, during the mid 2000s, um, up until not so long ago, it had a GDP per capita that was higher than some Nordic countries. <laughs> Obviously, if you were asked to, if you were to ask anybody from Equatorial Guinea if their even their just their material standard of living was as good or close to that of Denmark, uh, they probably would have laughed in your face. Uh, so this is obviously this obviously goes to you know the whole. Um, point you were making about how dictatorships can be good at you know producing things one thing perhaps <laughs> to increase output in this case it's obviously oil is a petrostate is a very special case but um uh, i think it also talks about how wealth is concentrated in this country like uh you have institutions there that basically allow for all this wealth income that can be produced in the country that it's funneled into one family or one group of people so uh, what can you tell me about that? How does that affect 
uh, you know, this inequality in this case, or you know, in general, uh, a, a big issue? So I, I would say something that's, so there's two ways I, I want to answer this. The first one relates to uh, GDP numbers under dictatorships. And this is not work I have done, but work that uh, Luis Martinez out of um, University of Chicago has done. What Martinez did is look, okay, uh, under dictatorships such as China, for example, uh, uh, GDP numbers are produced by, by bureaucrats who have incentives to meet certain targets of GDP growth. As a result, you can expect that the numbers themselves are going to be somewhat uh, misleading, uh, and probably overstated because of these incentives that the bureaucrats face, that they get rewarded for fast growth and punished for, for slow growth. Uh, and what Martinez did is he looked at uh, data from artificial light that uh, satellites orbiting the Earth can observe uh, during night time. So the idea is artificial light is highly correlated with GDP per capita, and the idea is generally that there is a certain predictable pattern uh, between increase in production and increases in light intensity. Uh, so you can use light intensity as the true measure of, of, of changes in economic activity in contrast to GDP and how much it can be overestimated or underestimated depending on the quality of the data. And what Martinez finds for, for China is that uh, GDP numbers are overestimating massively the, the level of economic growth uh, in China. Uh, not that there is no growth, but that the level of growth, I think, was two-fifths uh, higher than it actually is in the real world. So that we're overestimating Chinese economic growth. And uh, the idea from, from that point is you should always be very skeptical of numbers that dictatorships uh, will emerge, not because they deliberately manufacture data, but generally because under dictatorships, dictators care about a single particular outcome. And by devoting so much energy to that one outcome, uh, they're affecting people's incentives, not only in terms of how they act to increase that variable that the regime targets, but also sometimes how the, the data itself is, is reported. So that way you can get very misleading uh, information from this. Uh, maybe the case of Equatorial Guinea, with which I'm not familiar, falls into that type of categorization. Uh, the other part that's that's important to note, the second part of of of, of my answer is that under uh, is that uh, people are actually very tolerant of of inequality. Surprisingly, conditional on the type of institutions that govern the outcomes that emerges, uh, people in free societies with high levels of economic freedom. So I'm talking liberal democracies where you have, you know free elections, a free press, but you also have well-enshrined property rights. You have limited levels of regulations. So in this system, there is an appearance that uh, the, the playing field, uh, the rules aren't tilted towards one player or another. Incumbents are not favored at the expense of, of new people. Uh, there appears to be rules that are somewhat 
abstract and impartial and general in application. And in a situation like that, people are very tolerant of high levels of inequality. Uh, in less free societies where there is corruption, there is unfree political uh, institutions, but you also have uh, a very limited level of protection of property rights, high levels of regulation, high levels of corruption. Uh, the result is people are actually not willing to tolerate very high levels of inequality. In fact, the, the breaking point for them is at much lower levels of inequality. Uh, so uh, that is something that people have to bear in mind. People are not that hostile to inequality if they perceive the outcome as reflecting people's actual skills in providing services to to others, whereas under dictatorships or anocracies or uh, open anocracies, so regimes that are not liberal democracies, essentially, uh, in those you would expect uh, a lower a lower tolerance threshold for uh, for inequality. Uh, That's great. Thank you. Um, uh, we're, we're, we need hearing the end uh, for conversation. Uh, so I just wanted to ask you one last question and then maybe open up um, to questions from those who are listening to us. Um, uh, so my final question is, you know, first of all, it's two parts. Uh, first of all, is like, what are the implications in terms of policy, you know, uh, within democratic countries um, uh, and, and how we shape international institutions uh, of this, you know, romanticization of, of dictatorships or like always taking dictatorships at uh, their word <laughs> that they are forces for good in their countries. Um, and second, um, what is the approach that we should take uh, to development in general? Um, uh, there is a, a, you know, in the recent decades, uh, there is, you mentioned institutions, political institutions, and it, it's, it's gained a lot of steam and it gets a lot of support, this idea that, um, uh, proposed by Kurt uh, uh, and Darren Asimoglu and James Robinson, uh, that inclusive institutions, uh, political institutions, um, are the main drivers of, have been the main drivers of growth throughout history. Um, that means whenever you expand rights to people, whenever you allow uh, individuals to, to pursue their, um, uh, you know, their, 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 their own goals with, in freedom, um, under you know states that respect the rule of law, that protect uh, private property, uh, uh, things like that. I, th I think that can you can also extend that to just you know uh, respecting human rights in general. Um, uh, I, I believe that that is. Uh, what, what do you think of that approach in particular, and like um, uh, how we can in, in foster more of these uh, inclusive institutions as I mentioned? So the uh, the there's uh, there's a lot of work that goes in the same direction as Asimoglu and Robinson, and maybe their their originality is in synthesis rather than in an originality of, of contribution. Because there's been a lot of work, for example, from Douglas North and John we uh, Barry Winegas and John Wallace, who talked about open orders versus closed orders, and the general idea is that. Uh, the regimes that are more susceptible to uh, generate broadly defined economic uh, development. So that means like not only rising GDP, but also 
rising well-being uh, broadly defined. So that would be higher levels of life satisfactions, higher levels of life expectancy at birth, higher levels of life expectancy in the higher ages, higher levels of educational achievements, uh, higher level of opportunity for marginalized groups, women, uh, people from minorities. Uh, so generally, like, a, a, like this is this is the way you, you define it. And uh, what they generally argue is that those institutions that are able to generate those outcomes are institutions where there is an ability to compete in the political sphere uh, using peaceful means against regimes, but also that uh, there is other institutions that uh, create a space of economic freedom for uh, people to make choices, to uh, to uh, invest in firms, to start their businesses. And everyone uses in the literature their own little twists on the terms. But I think that the best way to summarize it is the thing that distinguishes liberal democracies slash open orders uh, slash Asimoglu and Robinson's uh, narrow quarter, that's what they call it, uh, I think the best way to characterize this is the idea that the regimes that uh, put their fate in rules above people are more likely to generate outcome. And what I mean by rules over people is that there are incentives for bad people to do the right thing so that the outcomes are not contingent on getting the right people. They're contingent on the rules of the game in uh, the world of uh, of statesmanship. So that, I think, is much more important. Uh, and that's why I, that's where I'd fit in my points about dictators, is you don't, you would not want a dictator. What you want is, and you shouldn't even care who the ruler is. It's not just like getting a better ruler or worse ruler. So that's why people on the right would say, oh, I like Pinochet, and people on the left say Castro was good, and they get to pick their ruler. Actually, a true commitment to the liberal democratic outer and it's and it's appreciated well consequences is one where players should not be relevant only the rules of the games are and in the ways that they force even bad people to do the right thing that's uh fantastic thank you so much um i want to open it up to uh to those listening to us if anyone has any questions vincent um, on this fascinating topic on development and, and dictatorships. No questions. <laughs> I guess I guess that means <laughs> I was essentially I was essentially very clear. I think I think you were. I think you were. I think we covered a lot of ground in, in a little less than an hour. Perfect. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well. Well, one last call. If anybody wants to ask Vincent a question. Um, if not, um, uh, I just want, I want to thank you so much, uh, Vincent, for taking the time uh, uh, to, to speak in, to speak to speak to us. Uh, I think this is a uh, this is a topic that is uh, probably under discussed, and I think there is a lot that we can learn from economic history and development uh, that can help uh, in 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 this global cause for expanding human rights and, and, and freedoms. I uh, no disagreement here. All right. Thank you so much, Vincent. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us.